0: Welcome back to the Ax in Politics, Part 2 of Season 1. I'm Ruri. I'm Kayla. I'm Lucas. And today we've got an interview at the end of our show with Max Abrams, a foreign policy expert. And before, we will give you an update on what's happened.
1: So one of the first stories this week is that Donald Trump, Donald Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, has been charged with battery after um, grabbing one of the reporters um after an event with Trump who was trying to ask him questions um, he also said that he's quote well his releasing a statement um, his lawyers and um, another one of the spokesperson for the for the Trump campaign said he's quote looking forward to his day in court um, and being exonerated of all charges which is crazy but it just goes to show that you know not a lot of people are paying really close attention to this
2: yeah no this has garnered a significant amount of uh media coverage and attention, but I just, you know, it seems to me, Rui, you made this point earlier when we were talking about this, that, you know, if Hillary Clinton's campaign manager had done the same thing, it would have blown up. It would have been absolutely crazy, but...
0: Or any other year. Yeah, any other candidate, any other year. It would have ended the... Yeah, and, you
2: know, as we know, like, this is a crazy year in politics, a crazy year for the election, but Mm -hmm. because it's Donald Trump, it's almost as if, like, we expect this to happen, right? Like, he has so many acts of violence at his rallies, he has done so many crazy things Had so many insensitive things that, of, like, of course it makes sense that as campaign manager would sort of beat someone up, so to speak, right? And so um, I just worry that the public has become desensitized to Donald, in a sense, and um, have lost sight of just how extreme some of these things he's doing are.
0: Yeah, seems like
2: exactly
1: we are. And, and it's, like, it's very scary also that he didn't immediately disown Um, you know, someone who is charged with battery. And that's, I think, also what would have happened in any other year or with any other candidate is they would distance themselves immediately from someone with such serious allegations against them.
0: And and it seems like, as you said, that as the public becomes desensitized to Donald Trump, we're also becoming more reconciled with the uh, feeling that he's going to be the nominee. Just yesterday, he, he met with the head of the RNC to discuss plans about an open convention. And they they dubbed the meeting the unity meeting because the RNC is going to have to get behind Donald Trump and Donald Trump's going to have to get behind the Republican Party if they if plan.
2: yeah if he's not the nominee and you know yeah. he you know essentially told them listen if I am not the nominee for the Republican Party I will not support whoever the nominee is um,
1: yeah which is a total backtrack from before um when when Kasich Trump and Cruz all agreed to support the eventual nominee and they're all sort of taking it back even um even Kasich who, you know, he he has a small chance of winning now. Um,
0: He can't win before an open convention, mathematically. He's just got so few delegates.
1: Right. But they're all, yeah, they're all just backtracking, um, no longer willing to support whoever the nominee is.
0: And then on the Democratic side of the ticket, um, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, that campaign seems to be heating up. It's very
2: hostile now, right? Yeah. uh,
0: I think uh, Hillary Clinton had a huge lead, then Bernie Sanders got some momentum with... His latest wins, but they're no longer congratulating each other by phone call, which is a uh, going back on some general campaign etiquette, and it doesn't show that the two candidates are very friendly to each other. And Bernie Sanders fans just hate that because right,
2: yeah, um, Sanders called for uh, another debate on the campaign cycle, and uh, you know he said, "Listen, I want to debate you in New York," and Hillary said, "No, like absolutely not." Um, and which which
0: I think makes sense for Hillary Clinton considering she's in a comfortable lead right now and okay. I think Bernie Sanders fans like to take that out of context and and just make it seem that she is hiding from him when uh-huh. any candidate, he would probably do the same if he was in the lead. Then again, Bernie Sanders fans make, make the most out of everything, as as I guess they should as they're so passionate about this campaign. But him not making the D.C. ballot because of a clerical error on the part of the DNC, that's just another screw-up by the DNC. Yeah, and it
2: does reflect poorly when, you know, there's allegations that the DNC favors Hillary Clinton and all that stuff. And right. so, you know, it's an unfortunate time for an accidental mistake to... So.
1: It's, and it's kind of sad to see this um, this sort of I, I, hostility is a strong word but you know, it's sad to see this coming from the democratic side since we've seen so much of it from the republican side and yeah. you know it, it's, um, it's unfortunate that, that it's growing you know.
0: it's actually becoming pretty divisive I think yeah. no, the Just yesterday or maybe it was two days ago Hillary Clinton at one of her rallies was confronted by a Greenpeace activist about fossil fuel campaign donations and she retorted at the activist, and I think we have the clip of that. We'll play it for you here.
3: Okay,
2: great. And yeah, actually going on with some Hillary Clinton news and combining it with some Stanford news. She was actually here just last week talking about, um, you know, in the wake of the just awful Brussels attack and talking she, about some foreign policy and counterterrorism yeah, stuff.
0: She gave her big foreign policy speech as people were hoping for and it was covered by national news. And
2: um, Yeah, we actually had our, uh, one of our own staff writers, Jake Dow, got behind the rope and uh, took a selfie with her and ended up on a TV clip of NBC News, so... Uh, yeah.
0: And he's actually going to be d- holding our interview today with mm-hmm. the foreign policy expert to talk about issues like Brussels and the Middle East. In other Stanford news...
1: Um, yeah, the um, the who teach, Who's Teaching Us movement has really been um, picking up steam lately um, just because they've released a set of demands. Um, and in a statement on their Facebook page, they also say, quote, uh, Stanford has failed marginalized students um, from its lack of facu- faculty diversity to its Eurocentric curricula. Stanford is not safe, inclusive, or equitable for all. Now we, the students, are holding Stanford accountable, end quote. Um, and it's just a very it's a very strong movement, um, and they've released a, a very strong set of demands. And
2: right, and this is like a nationwide to- thing too, right? In yeah. the wake of Yale, what happened at Yale, what happened at Missouri – campuses all over the nation have, becoming, have been starting these movements, um, trying to get more diversity representation on these very like white, male-dominated faculties. And
0: right. some of their demands extend beyond faculty representation, and they've been met with harsh criticism by some of the more conservative students on campus, including the, as always, Stanford Review. And just today, an, as an April Fool's joke, I think... I hope um, <laughs> the Stanford Review released a parody of "Who's Teaching Us Demands," and that's been quite controversial because, yeah, it's uh, it's quite offensive to a lot of marginalized communities on campus.
1: Right, and it's hard because you know you. E- there have been a lot of demands on campus, you know, there's been a lot of the administration needs to do this and that, and that's, you know, that's understandable, but, you know, the review releasing something so, um, I just want to say insulting and so satirical, um, that sort of makes fun of everyone who is passionate about a movement on this campus it, and then saying, oh, we're just kidding, it's April Fool's, doesn't really excuse the fact that they're making fun of a lot of people and a lot of issues that people are really sensitive about and, like, they really feel passionately about. And so, you know, I, I would I would call it almost distasteful and, um, you know, where's the oversight?
0: But they said... April Fool's at the end, so.
1: <laughs> and the question is, does that make it okay? Does it is it okay to say something completely offensive to someone and, and then say, oh, it's April Fool's, but I can say whatever I want because, you know, I don't care if it offends you because and, it's April Fool's.
0: And if you look at the comments, a lot of people <laughs> took it seriously. Yes. There's some people with profile pictures of Confederate flags <laughs> supporting, supporting these pseudo-demands, these fake uh, parody demands of who's teaching us. And they think it's hilarious. And I think when you attract that kind of audience you have to start questioning what you're putting out there.
2: Yeah. And also from like just like a like as a publication, a strategic standpoint, it feels as if the review's been maybe trying to garner some credibility with the student body and so to you know gain support for their petition for Western civilization. They're trying to like full present moon themselves the that full moon on the quad, you know, they're trying to present themselves as a publication that like students can get behind but like how could it's like it's hard to get behind the review you don't you don't really want to be anyone no one really wants to be associated with the review a lot they, when they, they publish something they put like out, this
0: they do put out quality articles once in a while but yes it becomes it becomes difficult to to associate yourself to defend them or when, when right. they put out these with the Stanford Review editorial board as the publisher
1: and I think that they're they've become sort of experts at polarizing, you know. So you've got the people who are really behind their articles and really think they're just they're funny and they're great. Then you've got the people who really, really, really don't like their articles or don't stand behind the positions they're taking. And I think that they that's one thing they've become really good at is sort of weeding out the middle ground almost. Um, so that's sort of an interesting, you know way that they publish to
0: retreat on the dialogue they claim to promote the rational dialogue but i think we value them here at spj because they do bring a necessary voice to campus that shouldn't be blocked out shouldn't be blocked out no they and they
2: yeah again like we were saying they they do publish some good articles that raise some excellent points and uh their viewpoints that aren't necessarily always heard around campus and at the same time they're still
0: important viewpoints
1: yeah. Right. It's an interesting balance of new viewpoints and aggressive strategy of sharing those viewpoints. So and We
0: love having them on our
1: show.
2: <laughs> right um, yeah, transitioning back to some national news. More Donald Trump news because this man is just perpetually in the news cycle at all times. Um, so this past week he said that women who seek abortion should be subject to some form of punishment if the procedure is banned in the U.S.
0: Yeah, that, that was a bit crazy and I think people have taken that... Pretty far, but like we said at the beginning of the show, probably won't do anything to hurt his campaign. He'll probably go up ten points. But um, later on in that day, he went back on that saying that he would punish the people who mm. yeah. uh, provide abortions because if it's illegal, there has to be some sort of punishment for breaking the law. Yeah, and right.
1: Which makes a lot more sense. Which is, but it's still really scary. Um, it's still a really just like. Two really scary statements from Donald Trump in one day, and it's when not he
0: says punishments. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it, it, you're thinking of Donald Trump, so that could mean waterboarding. You know, it's it's yeah, not or killing
0: your families.
2: It's
1: not comfortable Same. to to hear yeah, Donald Trump yeah. say anything of that of that nature.
2: Um, and I guess in our final piece of national news, just last week. Um, it's probably one of the biggest things that happened last week, but I don't know if a lot of people have heard about Domestically. it. Domestically. Domestically, of course. Yeah, no, obviously. Um, North Carolina passed a law that ended anti-discriminatory protections for LGBTQ plus people. And the interesting thing about this piece of legislation, it's a state law, right? So it only applies in the state of North Carolina. Um, it was drafted, passed, and signed all in the process of 24 hours. So it was... You know, the state legislature called an emergency session and they created the bill, they passed it through, the governor signed it, and now it's a thing. And it's received much backlash all across the nation. Governors from a variety of states, CEOs of a variety of companies have uh, actively denounced North Carolina and what they've just done. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with this law. You know, the courts, was, there was basically a suit filed against North Carolina, like, I think, like, uh, just, like, 20, like, 10, 12 hours after the law was passed. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what the courts do with this because they have yet to address, um, sort of, discriminator- discrimination against LGBTQ-plus people.
0: And the, the backlash, I think, was received also by Georgia, who yeah. vetoed the yeah, a so similar law. Georgia
2: was about to pass a similar law and... Didn't think, want to deal with it. Yeah, that. Marvel was actually saying, like, because Mar- Marvel filmed a lot in Georgia, they were saying, if you pass this law we're not going to film at all in your state anymore, and that's obviously, like, business for the state, kind of, and right. so um, the and governor...
0: And I think a lot of activists also played a role in... Yeah, yeah, for sure.
2: Right. vetoing.
1: Well, I guess we can just only hope that um, they find as much incentive as Georgia did to just get rid of something like this. Um, you know, hopefully businesses and other activists are, are putting the same pressure that um, on North Carolina as, you know, as in Georgia.
0: Well, we should probably wrap up so that we can leave... Time for the interview with Jake Dow and Max Abrams. Um, and I hope you enjoy it, and we'll, see you, next we'll week. see you next week.
4: Hello, my name is Jake Dow. I write on issues of foreign policy for the Stanford Political Journal, and with me today is Max Abrams, a terrorism expert and an assistant professor of political science at Northeastern University. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and we have him on the podcast this week to talk terrorism in the wake of the brussels attack attacks, and a fun fact about Max is that he spent two years at Stanford's uh, Center for International Security and Cooperation. So terrorism's obviously been prominent in the news in the last uh, couple of weeks so what do we what do we learn? What lessons do we take away from the Belgium of attacks first, as it relates to ISIS capabilities in Europe, and then secondly about European counterterrorism
3: Sure. Well, I think that what we're seeing is an evolution of Islamic state. Islamic state started off much more interested in the caliphate. It talked about the caliphate more and in terms of the directionality, you know, foreign fighters were uh gravitating in that direction uh largely through Turkey into Syria uh and you know there were a number of prominent Articles, for example, one written in The Atlantic, basically saying that Islamic State um, is motivated squarely to achieve the caliphate. Um, And in terms of counterterrorism practitioners, for example, the National Counterterrorism Center in the U.S., they came out and they said, you know, we really don't have that much to worry about internationally, because this is a group that is is mainly a local threat uh a number of prominent a number of prominent people i'll say uh, also uh seconded that um, out of uh, the brookings institute uh, and I disagreed and the reason why I disagreed is because just looking at the composition of Islamic state even from the start, it was always composed of people from all over the world, and so I began thinking, you know well, when these people return home. Uh, I don't expect them all to lay down their arms. And this is exactly what's going on now. Uh, Islamic State, its target selection is becoming much more diffuse internationally um, as people are returning home. Uh, We don't have a a good sense at all about uh, Islamic State's membership size. Uh, The numbers range all over the place from something like 30,000 to Seventy thousand, uh, depending on which intelligence service, and we certainly don't know the number of jihadis who have been planted in Europe. But I've seen reports that the number could be four hundred. Could, could it, you know they, they say diff, they give different numbers. The Islamic State itself has said ninety, um, but we're really not sure. But what 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 the Paris attack showed, um, and what the Brussels attack um, reinforced is that there are quite a large number of ISIS guys basically running wild in the west. Mhm. So, what are what are the
4: obstacles to closer European coordination in terms of counterterrorism uh, capabilities? Cuz all the observers that I've been reading and hearing, have just universally lambasted um the 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 European response to terror effectively or the preemption prevention.
3: Sure. Well, I do think uh, that Europe does not have a sterling record in this at all. For, for starters, um, even before you know the, these attacks in Europe, uh, it was obvious that Europe was having a severe terrorism problem in the sense that they were supplying such a large portion of the uh, foreign fighters, much more than in the United States, for example. Um, and and now they're. Uh, it turns out when you look into the biographies of some of these guys, they you know they started off in a European country, then they went to Syria, then they went back to Europe, then they went back to Syria. Uh, basically, just crisscrossing at will. And these these aren't even like low level off the radar operatives. These are guys who are very prominently displaying their faces um, through you know ISIS social media. Um, so. This is obviously a huge problem. I think that the number one problem um, has to do with border security. Uh, basically, uh, the United, you know, we take it almost for granted because in the United States, contrary to what uh, many you know, Republican critics may say, the borders are actually relatively uh, very secure. Uh, we, we do have quite secure borders, certainly in comparison to uh, Europe. Uh, I think that there was a sense, just drawing upon, you know, international relations more broadly, that basically the two wars, uh, two world wars, you know, things like that wouldn't happen if we could, you know, erode the concept of nationalism, uh, especially in Europe, if we could break down boundaries. Um, and so globalization was seen as having, you know, a pacifying effect for Europe. And whereas I think that that may be true, it may be true um, at an interstate level. Um, I don't think that it's true when it comes to counterterrorism, um, and so this is a problem that is only really going to get worse, uh, exacerbated, of course, by the refugee problem. Um, and uh, I mean, the politically correct thing to say used to be, you know, that uh, you know these refugees are essentially isis free um and that we you know basically we could address this humanitarian imperative um with uh, quite low security costs um, but the reality is is that the refugee problem uh really is contributing to uh, isis's expansion into European countries, and unfortunately we don 't even find out about them often until there 's another attack
4: mm-hmm. so you 've written about this um I've seen uh, kind of previously, but can you tell our audience? So, why do you think Europe has more of a problem with these really tight knit and effective carousels than the United States does?
3: Well, I mean, this is the golden question. Is people? I mean, it's basically a, a truism in terrorism studies that we need to quote unquote address the root causes of terrorism. Mm-hmm. But that's almost, you know, a tautological statement, because obviously, you know, it's totally vacuous. By definition, almost, if you address the root causes of a problem, um, you're going to, you know, mitigate it. Uh, the much more difficult thing to do is to actually identify uh, empirically valid root causes that uh, actually help us uh, make predictions about the kinds of people who will become terrorists. Um so I, I believe that you're alluding to an article that I wrote uh, called. For, uh, yeah. for oh, for foreign policy. Interesting. I thought you were talking about a paper I wrote called "What Terrorists Really Want." Um no, I, was, I was referring to yeah, the to the yeah, to
4: the, uh, yeah why why, I, why the United States doesn't have the, the same terror problem. The uh, it was a couple of years ago, but.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, one explanation just to to link it back to the root causes is that it's sometimes said that Muslims in the United States are much more integrated, they're much more assimilated into, you know, the United States and American culture than uh, Muslims in Europe. Um, And that basically variation in the sense of, you know, alienation of Muslims can help to predict their inclination uh, to participate in terrorism so uh you know so because uh it's widely believed that muslims in europe are more alienated perhaps we shouldn't be as surprised that muslim is that that europe is supplying a higher portion um of uh of foreign fighters than the united states but uh but really this is only one um explanation the reality is is that this search this classic search for a root cause um, has essentially come up empty uh, because there have been many sort of intuitive hypotheses that upon inspection just don't seem to pan out. Uh, Yesterday I was on a show with a guy who was saying, you know, what we need to do is uh, make sure these people get jobs. Uh, We need to raise, you know, their standard of living but uh you know economic deprivation has continuously proven to be a poor predictor uh of terrorism uh, so and furthermore in terms of the alienation thesis the reality is is that it's pretty hard to to measure alienation as a useful predictor for becoming a terrorist so uh basically the search goes on so in a kind of
4: upsetting pattern the targets that have been um attacked in Europe are what we call soft targets a concert a soccer stadium an airport mm-hmm. is this something that you expect to continue and how can security officials counter this trend because soft targets are soft kind of um just because they're they're not military institutions they're right. not um inherently something that uh is defended uh with with arms with heavy arms so how how do you uh see sure. this going into the future, and how, what are, what's the response that you expect from both Europe and America?
3: Sure. So Islamic State is not at all representative of other terrorist groups. It's very exceptional um, in many, many ways. And one way that it's exceptional is that it's much more indiscriminate than other groups. It's much more indiscriminate in pretty much every way you could imagine. It's indiscriminate about who can join. Basically, there's no vetting process whatsoever. Um, Other terrorist groups, they do screen members, you know, as uh, possible liabilities. Uh, Islamic State is indiscriminate about basically uh, lending affiliation um, to groups that say it wants to be fighting uh, in the name of Islamic State. For example, Boko Haram. Boko Haram did not get affiliation from Al Qaeda, but Islamic State is happy to provide it. Uh, the group Islamic State is also very indiscriminate in terms of what uh, attacks it claims credit for. Most groups don't claim credit for most of their attacks. Islamic State claims credit for all of its attacks, and frankly, even attacks that may not um, have been Islamic State attacks. And finally, Islamic State is very, very indiscriminate in its target selection. Um, it almost seems as if no target is off-limits to this group. I believe that the leader, Baghdadi, has essentially given the green light to absolutely anybody in the world to strike pretty much any target in the world any time of day. Um, And so you're quite right when you consider the security implications. That makes counterterrorism virtually impossible because, you know, if a group has a lot of members, um and they have some training and they have some firepower and they're prepared to die and they don't care about what target they attack then this is going to be a very uh, violent group um and so that you also asked what do i think about sort of the directionality of their target selection what i can say is that we we i've observed a, a paradox over the past week And that is that although Islamic State seems to be getting weaker in its stronghold of Iraq and in Syria in all sorts of ways, Islamic State seems to be increasingly interested in striking hardened targets. Now, I mean, that's a paradox because you might think that as a group gets weaker, you know, it wants to be able to continue using violence so, it's, so it would become more, um, you know, just happy to strike any target. Uh, but uh, based on the information that law enforcement has recovered, for example, a laptop uh, showing, I believe it was, you know, where uh, Belgian officials live, um, an attack um, on the uh, Belgian airport, for example. Uh, these are hard, semi-hard targets. Um, and so it's interesting uh, that we're seeing this paradox.
4: Mm-hmm. So a lot of the European uh, security organizations were created to deal with interstate war in the light of the Cold War. But uh, it seems like there's a prime opportunity because of the, the lack of really effective European counterterrorism to to add responsibilities of counterterrorism to these existing uh, organizations. Is that something that you see as plausible or um just a potential uh, option. How do you think that these organizations can evolve to deal with this transnational terror threat on top of the uh, interstate war threat that they were created to deal with?
3: Sure. I mean, I think that basically what we're doing in Iraq and in Syria, as hard as that is, is actually a lot easier than trying to prevent terrorism uh, in, you know, liberal democracies. So I do I am optimistic that we're going to seriously degrade and ultimately destroy Islamic state in its stronghold um, by using all sorts of military instruments you know from predators to to bombers to to boots on the ground um, this is going to happen but as it happens the group is going to increasingly be under duress and essentially incentivized to decentralize, because if it remains totally centralized in the face of all this opposition, um, it, will, it will, you know, die. Um, so the group is, is metastasizing and spreading out into places like Libya and in Europe. Uh, and, and the reality is, is it's very, very difficult to fight terrorists once, you know, they've reached a critical mass in your country, especially if it's a liberal democracy. Really, the key to counterterrorism, and this may seem obvious, is to prevent, you know, the emergence of a large number of terrorists in the first place. The reality is, is that once there are a large number of terrorists in a country, it's very, very difficult to recommend any concrete policies, um, that could, you know, reliably protect the population. So I do not envy uh, Belgian authorities. I don't know how many operatives are in that country, but it seems to be that that you know that there are continuous sleeper cells. It's very hard. Um, I think that the United States has done a good job um, at home, um, basically thwarting uh, a, a large number of attacks. Um, I do not fully understand how they do it. I mean, a lot of it is basically uh, undercover work. Um, but it's difficult because in countries like the United States, we're really not dealing with a large number of terrorists. And in a way, that makes thwarting them harder because typically plots are thwarted by picking up on communications between members. Well, you know, if there's a couple, for example, um, you know, in say San Bernardino or there's a lone attacker, uh, the likelihood of picking up on these communications. It is a lot lot lower. So regardless really of what uh countries in the west do, uh we will not be able to completely snuff out um you know the lone wolf threat. Um but I do think that uh, it's very useful to continue pummeling the group um as an at an organizational level because that will erode the ability of the group to recruit internationally and to inspire people locally. Because let's face it, it's just not as popular these days to to join Islamic State or to fight on behalf of Islamic State um, while the group is, you know, getting crushed.
4: Max Abrams from Northeastern University and the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks for your input on the terrorism response and the analysis on ISIS.
3: My pleasure.